HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Chaipani Restaurant Group. This week on Meet and 3, it's our season four finale, and we're sharing some of our greatest kitchen joys. Maybe most people consider making it too much work or too messy, but this is the food that's worth the work and worth the wait. You always know where the thing is because you put it away the right way the first time. You just sort of stand there and, you know, with your hand on your hip and one leg outstretched, glass of wine in your hand, staring into the refrigerator going, okay, speak to me. Oh yeah, what are you doing with the celery tonight? I'm making a simple syrup for a gin cocktail with the celery. And I also found a recipe for a celery soup that's going to use up the celery and the potatoes and some of that dill that we still have hanging out in there. (laughs) Tune in and be inspired to find the joy in your kitchen. And don't forget to subscribe to Meat in 3 wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey guys, it's September 10th, 2019. This is the first episode of our live fall season. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host here on the Heritage Radio Network. We have a special show today. We just finished the 10th annual Pig Island event in Brooklyn, and uh, two of the chefs are here, and uh, let's go around the room and introduce each other, because we're talking about the Made in Mexico cookbook, about some of the great chefs that are part of the Mexican community in New York City. So hey, I'm uh, Danny Mena. So I'm a chef of uh, used to be Echo and Dumbo, and now a restaurant here in Bushwick called La Loncheria. And you got your book out. What's it called? It's called Made in Mexico: The Cookbook. All right, and it's a special book. We're going to talk about that. Everybody else, let's go through. I'm Arik Torin. Uh, I am the importer of Pedencio Spirits, and I import artisanal Mexican juice. And you guys, you're based down in Oaxaca. Um, some of the producers I work with are. I'm based, I'm from Brooklyn. Cool. I live in Manhattan now. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> and another chef. Uh, Senovio Canalizo. I'm from uh, the chef from Morgan's Brooklyn Barbecue here in Brooklyn. So we all hear everything of neighbors here. Great. <laughs> and I just want to give a big shout out to everybody in this room. I mean, Pig Island's an important event. It's the 10th year that we did it. Danny, you started doing it in 2011, either at Hecho and Dambo or La Lancheria. You've been there. In the last couple of years, you've been uh, pouring mezcal as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that first time we started off, and uh, it's a pretty... Uh, 
pretty exciting event. A lot of people come, a lot of, a lot of meat. We used to get the whole pigs and used to break them down and, and try to do something. Um, you know, I always, always my goal is to cook it there. You know, to me, it's like we have a grill. We got, you know, a man and a, man and a pig, and it's kind of like mano a mano and see what you can do there. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, cooking on the spot, people waiting. The grill gets hot. It gets too cold. The wind starts blowing. Last time the wind was, wind was really blowing, you know, and so much fun. Um, so kind of a, an what, exciting. What was the thing dish that you guys served this year, La Long So this year we did a. Uh, there's a dish that's kind of uh, called pokchuk, which is a Yucatecan dish, which is basically uh, like smoked uh, pickled pork. Um, usually it's sliced very thin. So what we did is we pickled it for like four days, kind of like a brine, but with a lot more like sour orange and like some vinegar. And then we cooked it on the grill for about. So we got there around nine in the morning, and by one o'clock in the afternoon, the pork was was coming out really nice. Well, I spent all day reading through your Made in Mexico cookbook. It's being launched uh, very soon in New York City. Um, I just want to give a big shout-out. Rizzoli Books, Made in Mexico, the cookbook, Danny Manier. We're going to talk a little bit about that today. And uh, Sonobio, so you're the chef at Morgan's Brooklyn Barbecue. Uh, backstory is that restaurant's been there for a while in Prospect Heights on 7th Ave and Flatbush. And- and last year, um, a great restaurant family took it over, and you've been the chef. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing at uh, Morgan's and the dish that you made at Pig Island. Yeah, so basically, uh, we took over the restaurant uh, last year, uh, and I participated in three events in, in, in ribs and uh, brisket. And I really like it, you know. I think one of my favorite events here is on Peak Island, you know, like open doors and it was perfect parking, you know, everything. And and really nice people, like everybody we enjoying. And, and like basically like uh, people's like everybody was so happy in the line, you know, like waiting for the tacos. So this year, uh, I mean, I served it my first time on Peak Island this year. And I did something which is uh, I combined it kind of like, like, like Texas, like Southwestern taco. So my idea was like, okay, I gotta do something. I want to do something like, uh, I want everybody to be enjoy, you know, like fresh, like the weather and everything. So I did it a uh, 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 pool pole taco uh, with corn tortillas and some grilled pineapple, and I, I was garnished with some uh, uh, radishes and fresh cilantro with some smoked paprika vinaigrette. It was really good, and I'm so happy that everybody everybody loves it. You had a great presentation too. You had a a whole roasted pig. Yeah, actually, well. yes. You know, I, I, you know, it was so funny the day when, when they told me, it's like, hey, we have a pig for you. I went, I went to pick him up. It was not there. It's like somebody else <laughs> took it. But uh, so I called my preparers immediately. It's like, hey, I want, uh, get me a pig here, get me a pig there. But you know, thank God, like, Jimmy, thank you very much, actually, for you get it to then for the next day. It was like right on time, and and I was so happy the way how I cook it. I do like kind of like different ways, uh, different different ways. I, I smoked my. Uh, my porks like for 14 16 hours and so to be ready for the next day of the event and i have like a like a pick around 95 pounds on top of the grill and open doors <laughs> was perfect like everybody was so happy like taking a pictures and i was pulling actually the 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 meat from the pork in the grill and do the tacos yeah that's nice. that's been pretty popular and then arik Say your name, man. Yeah, Arik. Yeah. Arik, you gave me a hard time. I'm, I'm known for mispronouncing. I, I, everyone's known for mispronouncing my name. So you're, you're the, the Mezcal guy. Talk I'm, about how you Danny. know Danny and how you guys work together. I know Danny because Danny's the Mezcal guy, too. He's got his brands, Mezcal de Leyenda and Peloton. And I started uh, importing. Uh, we launched Fidencio Mezcal 10 years ago. And um, 
since then we started working with other producers in other categories and other places throughout Mexico and uh, really enjoying spreading the love and, and the flavors. Well, Danny, you know, we've been spirit. together so long. You did nine years at Pig Island, but it was three years ago in 2016. You, your idea was to do a mezcal y barbacoa event. Yeah, you know, I mean, like, there's such great food all over Mexico and, and the combination of, like, mezcal. So mezcal typically, you know, gets cooked in a pit underground, the, the, uh, you know, the agave hearts, and that's what gives it kind of its distinct flavor. And so we were trying to find a way to like do this event that's, you know, I love doing Pig Island and all the events that kind of Jimmy puts on, but really to do something that's a little more traditional to kind of Mexico in the style of food. And we're like, what better way than doing like barbacoa, which basically means like cooking in a pit underground, which is what's how you cook the agave, how you kind of make mezcal that at the same time do and get some really great chefs. And it was a fantastic event out there right around the water. We had a really good turnout, so that was, you know, that was a lot of fun to organize. And since it's a beer show, let's talk a little bit about you guys importing mezcal and, and also the craft lager scene coming out of Mexico. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, craft lager in Mexico is starting to really kind of blow up. Um, I think, you know, it, it, like, like many places, New York kind of in the United States definitely was taking the lead. Um, and Mexico, we had one craft beer that I don't know if anybody remembers called Casta. And this was from like the late 90s. And someone just told me that they were completely defunct. Um, but then you're starting to see a lot of different brands. Northern Mexico has a lot of different uh, kind of craft beers. And then, Eric, two, three years ago, you brought in uh, Allende? Allende, yeah, which has some really beautiful products. So he did uh, that, and then uh, and now I'm about to bring in from, so a little bit north of Mexico, this town called San Juan del Rio, which is in Querétaro, um, and there they make uh, a Bach and a Helles Bach. And so these kind of lagers that are really rooted in Germanic kind of beers, which is the influence of Mexico, like Mexican beer came from you know, from Germanic styles. Um, and so, uh, like, we have Bohemia, of course, which is even, you know, even the name of it. Um, it was very, very, uh, pronounces that very much. Oh, that's but, uh, great. And we actually, last winter, that style is, is becoming more popular. Um, Innerborough made a beer called Dead Prez, which was a Vienna-style lager this past winter, which was my favorite beer of the winter. So I'm definitely looking forward to it. We did try the Allende beers three years ago. Oh, nice. They're more of, like, the amber lager Vienna Lager style that you brought in, and there was also a um, an IPA um, that was really cool, really delicious, and um, the Vienna malts that was part of the brown ale. Um, and then did you have one that was made with uh, agave syrup? Yeah, or uh, the agave lager. That's agave a, lager. a um, that is they're taking uh, uh, roasted pinas of espadín from Oaxaca. And putting it in the fermentation, so it's a co-fermentation. It's a really cool beer. Oh wow! Yeah, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah. Oh, that's great. A lot of the good things are coming yeah. through, you guys. Definitely and, uh, not traditional. Let's jump now, now to the cookbook. So, Danny, I'm really proud. Of, again, made in Mexico book, Rizzoli Publishing. Uh, it's definitely my my book of the year. I'm going to get it for friends for Christmas. Uh, there's some things you say in the book that really stand out to me. First, I want to say that this is an amazing book. Even though Danny's a, a restaurant owner, he's not pushing his products. He's in Mexico City. Um, every recipe, he also references a restaurant there that, that, that made it. So this, to me, is the ultimate book. When I look at it, the photography is like, I want to go to Mexico City. I want to go to all these places. And what the hell am I doing with my life, Danny? <laughs> what are you doing? Everybody's got to go to Mexico. I mean, and, you know, as much love as Oaxaca gets and all these kind of little towns in Yucatan and all that, um, and, of course, everybody on the East Coast goes to, like, Tulum, and everybody on the West Coast goes to uh, Puerto Vallarta. But Mexico City is just such an amazing city right now. Like, 
just the food that's coming out, the chefs, the style. Like, there's so much that, you know, being raised from Mexico and when I first kind of came to the U.S., I always made the mistake of saying, well, in Mexico we do this and in Mexico we do that. And somebody from northern Mexico was like, whoa, 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 whoa. In Mexico, in your town with your group of friends, mm-hmm. yes, you have the torn tortillas. They're done in this way. So, you know, when we opened Mexico, Metro and Dumbo, it was a Mexico City-inspired restaurant. And though Mexico City means kind of nothing in a sense because there's food that comes from all over the country comes to Mexico City – there's still like a sensibility on the way that it gets plated, you know, like a simple term like michelada in Mexico, which is a beer with a, like a shandy's beer with like lime. In Mexico, michelada means lime and beer only. And if you say a Cuban, a cubana, michelada cubana, then it has the spices. But if you go almost anywhere else in Mexico, the michelada is the one with spice and then they call it like a chelada. And then so, so it's interesting. Like, so just like that, there's these little things about what makes Mexico City kind of really unique. Um, and so that's kind of what the, the point of the book was to really talk about these great restaurants that, that, that just are so much fun to eat at. Now, and a couple of th- you said Mexico City, the city of immigrants. I mean, it's quite a cosmopolitan city. Yeah, I mean, from the, from the history of, of Mexico, I mean, obviously there's the, the Spaniards that came and kind of colonized, but there's been, you know, Lebanese, there's a huge Chinatown in Mexico City. I mean, you have a lot of expats from, from the United States coming through, um, and there are people from all over. I mean, right now, a huge influx of people from Argentina, and it's really an interesting kind of... I feel like the fun. kids that have trust funds, they're, they're going to Mexico City now, <laughs> right? They are. It's they a are. good place. It is. But um, that's, I want to read the book. Um, there's... What I like about the book, Danny, is that to me, it's totally your voice, and uh, we don't read from cookbooks too often, but the first two lines of your introduction, when I read that this afternoon, my first thought was, wow, that's Danny's voice. So I want to hear you, hear you read the first two lines in and your I own voice. I can really hear my voice. Because so. otherwise, I, I can imitate you. <laughs> <laughs> Please, no. Not on air. Um, it starts off, introduction. Mine isn't the typical chef's backstory. I was a picky eater as a child and didn't care... M- care about or even much like food. Eating could be a chore for me. You know, that said, though, food is integral to everyday life in Mexico City and that it was hard to avoid absorbing information about it. Um, you know what I mean? Like, it was, it was interesting. Like, growing up, I was, my mom would always, and she, my mom was an American, and so my dad, and my dad is from, like, the small little town in Mexico. So he was, like, the very traditionalist when it came to food that he always needed three courses. You first start off with the soup, then you had your kind of main course, and then, and then, he wasn't much into dessert, but he would eat his jello or something. Um, and so my mom really learned how to make like the basic rice and the soups and all that. And so he was really like satisfied with her type of cooking. But I never really appreciated. I really didn't know. I'd go out to restaurants and I'd always eat the same thing. I wouldn't want any any sauce or anything like that. I remember one time as a kid, I was all at my friend's house, and we were probably like 15 years old. And it's a big group of like 12 of us. And everyone's sitting around eating chilaquiles, which is a dish basically of stewed um, chips. They're like tortilla chips stewed in a sauce, um, and which is funny right now. Like uh, the more I analyze it, the hotter the sauce is, the better the, the chilaquiles. And that's the only <laughs> merit of if it's good or if it's not good. If it's not hot, the chilaquiles, it doesn't matter how good the sauce is and how much flavor, whatever, whatever it's got to be spicy. And so, uh, What's better when you're hungover, um, menudo or... Chilaquiles. chilaquiles. <laughs> I, I'm a chilaquiles type of guy. It's I don't know that that spice oh, and the chips and oh yeah, yeah. that's a, and, and Sonobi, What about you? So you, Dan's from Mexico City. Where are you from? I'm from Puebla, basically like a two hours to Mexico City. You know, so I'm, I'm I'm coming from a little town in in Puebla, and I came here a couple years ago. And my first job, you know, when I started, I remember I was washing dishes because I was cooking in Mexico. You know, my mom and my dad is like always like. 
like we never go out like eat in a restaurant so she always cooks so i always watching and i always like to cook you know for my brothers for my sisters so when i come to this country i was like wait a second um i'm washing dishes i know how to cook and i started working my first job at a southwestern restaurant so it's kind of like it's, it's, it's mexican and like texas style food and I was doing, I was like, I can do better than that. Like, you know, like Danny said, I was like, I can do it over that. In Mexico, I used to be doing like that, you know. But uh, here, I work with a, with a good chef, you know. It was a three-star restaurant here in New York City. And I learned everything, like all the recipes. So basically, I started from washing dishes, go uh, do desserts, do pastry, do salads, and the line cook, and to come out a chef. And my favorite food, you know, like I said, the chilaquiles is one of the, my, my favorite uh, items. Uh, chilaquiles, the mole, and that's why I decided to do the big island like a little taco, you know, like kind of like combine it with the pineapple, kind of like a, a taco al pastor style, mm -hmm. which is like, you know, like a little bit kick with the pineapple, not with the, uh, you know, like tacos al pastor, like they have like more spices on it, but like, so I tried like to combine it something a little bit like that, you know, that's why I did it. Yeah, it was a great dish, man. Cheers. And we're toasting uh, the mezcal. Arik, what mezcal are we drinking first? This is uh, this was a this is a great afternoon drink. I'll yeah, tell you. <laughs> I agree. This is a La Venenosa Ricea. So this is a mezcal in the general sense, and this category is called Ricea. This La Venenosa is called Sierra del Tigre, and it's a really small producer that we work with. High elevation clay pot distillation, agave and aquitans, uh, and a very weird spirit because long fermentation. It's funky and. Um, what do you think of it? I love it. I mean, oh, it, it's dry. Like it. well, how would you describe it to someone? I mean, Leo's here, one of your uh, your, your reps. No, he's not on. <laughs> you, you, you had a guy. It's so cool. Eric came in and he didn't realize that he was going to bring something to drink, and he had some people come. Major foul. Right? But I, I don't. I don't really know how to talk about mezcal. I like it. That to me, it it tastes like mezcal. It doesn't taste. There's no oak or anything. Mm -hmm. um, but what is that flavor? It's uniquely. Is that just fermentation? This guy, this guy is one of the most oddball uh, bottles in my book. And, you know, everything is a culmination of everything. So when we talk about the, why does this taste this way, who's making it? This is made by Don Luis. What is he making? This is clay pot distilled agave and aquitans done in his place, in his equipment. All natural fermentation or spontaneous or wild. Um, and because of his process it goes through a very long fermentation so this particular thing has nearly you know between 18 21 days of fermentation which is crazy and all these things that would normally be a flaw just come out to be really beautiful in this very amazing spirit no it's so clean and refreshing yeah. there's like some nice flavors but, you know this one especially but all kind of mezcals have a, a lot of acidity mm. and it's something that like it can be too much and it's something they kind of battle but but why it pairs so well and it just I mean immediately it can be dry but it makes you salivate so much and this one has you know a really, yeah, high really nice point. acidity uh -huh. you know back, and back to the book I mean I know that twenty years ago we weren't able to get these mezcals in a typical bottle shop in New York or restaurant but the same thing with food ingredients <coughs> Danny you said um, trying to promote your yeah, book thank you. made in Mexico um, you said one of the biggest challenges was finding the ingredients when you wanted to find authentic Mexican food. Yeah, I mean, that's something, like I went to uh, a conference in Spain probably like 10 or 11 years ago, um, and we had just opened at Cho and Dumbo, and the people were coming to me, it's like, man, there's no good food, and there's no good Mexican food here in Spain, you should open up a restaurant. And, you know, I, I, I thought about it for a while, because to move to Madrid would be a, a, one of my highlights in life. 
But I was looking at their ingredients and I was like, the avocados were, if they're expensive here in the US and, and like in Spain, they're like four dollars or four euros an avocado. It's like tomatillos, you can't get it fresh. And I was like, if you can't get any of the ingredients, you just can't make good food. You know what I mean? If it's all processed, if it's all canned, like there's just, you know, there's only so much one can do. And that's kind of what it was like in New York, you know, 20 or 30 years ago when Zarella was around and things like that. It was not so easy. Now, I mean, I go to, I mean, obviously we have purveyors for the restaurant and you can get any type of chili you want. You get any type of ingredient. I mean, there's so much that they can get. But even if you go to, like I used to get a lot of food at um, the SX Market and, uh, and there's like a little section there and they had every, I mean, so many different types of Mexican ingredients that, that I could use with all that and like, you know, being just so fresh now with like how good transportation and everything is, you really... It's really nice that and it's fun that I go back to Mexico and, and I tell my friends about, oh, we're making this with this ingredient, with that ingredient. And my friends are like, what is that? They're starting to eat McDonald's and you're making authentic <laughs> Mexican. What about, Sonobi, what, what about some ingredients from, from when you grew up that you wish you had in New York or that you are, are able to find? Yes, a couple, like especially like chiles. Like now in Morgan's, like uh, we have the Texas chili, which is we mix it, we make it with like uh, different chiles, uh, like mulatto, pasilla, chile de arbor, chipotle. But it's one chile in Mexico where uh, we used to be like uh, growing up. Like uh, uh, my fa- my parents is basically we have like a big farm and we have like all the type of chiles, uh, flowers, fruits, and everything. But the one I miss is there's one chile we call in Mexico. They call chile loco. Like crazy chili, <laughs> chili loco. Mm-hmm. And I tried to look everywhere over here and I never found it. I don't know if you done it see anywhere. I've they not, call it chile loco. Chile loco, no. Yeah, and, and, and only in my town in Mexico, like uh, the town, like uh, like I said, like we're close to the volcano. And and every time we come to shopping in Aclisco, they don't even have that chili. So my mom, she used to be bringing a basket and like selling by uh, by kilo, by pieces. And it was, it's, a, it's a great chili. And that's <laughs> the one what I miss it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting because also like, and, and this goes kind of back to like Mexico City and that, that you can get a lot of chilies in Mexico City, but the local chilies like a Chile Loco or, you know, Oaxaca has some specific ones where there's one called a Chihuacle, um, you know, which is, and there's, an, there's the red, the black and the yellow. And each one of those is the base for one of the seven base moles. So the chile, el mole negro has to have Chihuacle negro. You know, mole amarillo has to have the yellow and the rojo has to have the red. And it's such an important part of that dish that when you try to make a mole negro here in the United States, if you don't have, you know, that chile, you're, you're missing something. You know what I mean? And so there's, so there, I like that the chile pasilla that exists in Oaxaca is different than the chile pasilla that you get in, uh, you know, that you get in Mexico or what we get here. Like I actually found out from one of my purveyors that most of the chilies, like especially like the chile de arbol, which is really similar to the Thai chili. Actually, our, the chili that was that they sell me come from China, not from Mexico. So I had to start paying a premium because I was like, <laughs> no disrespect to, anything, to like a chili come from China. But if I'm making Mexican food and I'm using Mexican ingredients, like why would I use like an imported exactly, chili? Yeah. You know what I mean? Exactly, so, yeah. So like that, there's a lot of little things that are still missing. And, and those are things that you could only even really get regionally in Mexico. And so next month you you're have some uh, Mexican craft lagers coming in. Can you just tell us again what the brand is? Yeah, so the, the beers that we're bringing in is called Habali. And so uh, it's, this, this, it's a Bach and a Hellas Bach. How do you um, spell it, Danny? Habali is J-A-B-A-L-I, and it's, uh, it means wild boar. So the idea of these kind of beers is, you know, these are lagers, in which, which, but they're all kind of like a Bach is higher proof. Um, and then the Hellas Bach, just to kind of showcase another highlight uh, or, you know, something that when you don't, you don't, you know, you want to try to break some barriers. So the Hellas Bach is a lighter beer by look. It's color. It's 
you know, less, less dark, but it has a substantially higher uh, alcohol content to it. So it's that, that it doesn't necessarily, just because you see a beer that's light or just because you see a white spirit, doesn't mean that it's not as complex as like a brown spirit. You know what yeah. I mean? And that's kind of that idea that we were, we were playing with. And what, what are the steps that you take to import? I mean, you, you already knew these guys. They want to export to the States. You know, what are some of the... I mean, things that led to this. Yeah, I mean, the things that led to it was interesting. So my partners for, so for my mezcal brand, they actually opened up one of the first craft beer bars in, uh, in Mexico City. And so their partners, they were doing it, had this other beer, and they're, they're a, a, beer, a brewery called uh, Tempus. And so they've uh, actually worked with New Belgium. Um, and so they've been uh, you know, making beers for a long time in, 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 uh, in Mexico. And they've kind of, they just came out with a, like, a, together with Belgium, New, or New Belgium, they came out with a new one that's... Uh, it's kind of with a little bit of hibiscus and agave syrup and kind of playing to what, what people want now, kind of a lighter, fruitier sort of beer. Um, and so we started talking probably two years ago, um, and they were kind of interested, but they were still making sure that they'd find the right partner because the United States, like, you know, one of the things that's interesting about, like, mezcal, like, right now, the United States now consumes more mezcal than, we, than Mexico does. And because of the size of the United States and because of the economic power that, you know, the, the people have in the United States, never again will mezcal be consumed more in Mexico than in the United States. You know what I mean? It passes that. So if you're trying to build a brand, like they were doing a lot of work in Mexico, but, you know, taxes are really high and it doesn't make it that easy there. And distribution's a little weird um, that they're waiting for the right partner. And so finally we're about to start. So we're going to start New York. We're going to do Chicago. We're going to do California and kind of get those three major markets and then little by little start expanding to like Texas and Florida and We'll see. We'll see where else it can go. And Eric, what, what about for you with your brands? Um, in terms of ex- choosing partners in, in Mexico and, and bringing those into the States? Well, it started with Fidencio, and for me that was kind of ooh, 13 years ago. Um, meeting Enrique, the producer, our partner with it, and then kind of blindly going one foot in front of the other until we could figure out how to make a brand, do copywriting, trademarking, and getting things in legally into the United States. In 2012, I saw a post on Facebook about La Venenosa from Esteban Morales, the founder of that brand, and I basically stalked him. And then kind of from there, it led, you know, it, it led me to realize, or, or at that point I was already beginning to realize how broad agave spirits are. So uh, you, you kind of like... It could be you, you meet a person, you're inspired by a product, um, you make a relationship, it works out, you start working together, and you start bringing the next thing in. And you you want to hear the easiest recipe for an awesome drink? Yeah. Take Danny's Peloton Mezcal, <laughs> slightly smoky, just put it in your margarita instead of tequila. <laughs> That's pretty good, right? It's it delicious. makes it so much better. Yeah, uh, we, and once you do that, you'll never go back to a tequila margarita. Yeah, and then you get the smoke, so that's one, one less mm-hmm. thing you have to add, too. Yeah. yeah. Oh, we, used, we used to do that at Jimmy's 43. I loved it, man. <laughs> but um, we're going to take a short break for just one minute. We'll be back on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. This episode is brought to you by Chaipani Restaurant Group. From Bombay to Buncombe and Asheville to Atlanta, Chaipani has extended the love of food, culinary experience, and storytelling to the Southeast. Founded by Meherwani and Mali Irani, 
Chaipani Restaurant Group includes two locations of Chaipani, plus MG Road Bar and Lounge, Botiwala, Buxton Hall Barbecue, and their new spice company, Spicewala. Learn more about Chaipani and watch their documentary series, Cutting Chai, at chaipanirestaurantgroup.com. That's C-H-A-I-P-A-N-I restaurantgroup.com. Hey, hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Check it out, heritageradionetwork.org. There's a big 10th anniversary gala coming up a little later this year, so keep checking it out, heritageradionetwork.org. So Danny Mania, made in Mexico. So what were you saying? Uh, na- non-native ingredients? or native? You know what I mean? It's really interesting, like what, what, what uh, ingredients were in Mexico um, before kind of the Spanish came, and they were like, so like tomatoes and chilies and, and uh, vanilla, cocoa, all these sort of ingredients that are that are now we see them in other parts. So like you know, Italian food never had um, tomatoes until after you know they, they they founded Mexico or you know they found the New World. Um, and then at the same time, on the other one is like cilantro, which is not native to Mexico. Pigs not native to Mexico. You know things like that 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 now we we think they're so you know so, so such a part of the cuisine. But really, cilantro is obviously from well, the spice this, Your book is set up really cool, made in Mexico. But there's one chapter that says why pork. So you're, you're kind of leading into that. Exactly. Why pork in Mexico? You know, the, the Spanish brought it over, um, and, and really Mexicans really took to pork. And now it's like, especially in the southern part of Mexico or middle to, to, to all the southern part, I mean, pork is in almost every dish. And like in certain dishes, like, you know, I love like tacos al pastor. We we're kind of just talking about mm-hmm. that. And that's a dish, obviously, that had the Lebanese influence um, because it's pork, uh, pork on a spit. But then, of course, as Mexicans, we are the ones who change it because obviously the Lebanese were not bringing it in with pork. Um, it was not swine that. Uh, and then, of course, it has the chilies, which makes it very Mexican. You know, and the pork is a Spanish. So, like, really, Mexican food is kind of a fusion of all these foods in the world. Um, you know, from native indigenous ones that were there, and of course, the influence from the Spain and from the you know, Lebanese, and there was definitely some Dutch also influence, um, and then of course French. And so, uh, so it's really interesting to see how it kind of comes together. You know, mole. There's all these sort of ingredients that kind of come together, and some of them are very native to Mexico, and some of them are not. Um, and then it all of a sudden now becomes one, and there's no like no so one thinks what, that. What was a, the indigenous food in Mexico? What was it like before pork came? I mean, what were what ben, were people venison? Making? There was a lot of a lot of game, but venison. There were some goats. Um, wild turkeys was a, was a was a one, but no no horses, no beef, no pork. None of those existed until after the Spanish came. And what what did, what did the indigenous people use for cooking fat? Um, it wasn't much. It was all there was like, no butter. Uh, there was no butter. No olive oil. No olive oil. They tried to do olive oil groves in uh, Mexico, and that was that didn't uh, was not the right climate for that. Um, that it wasn't. Uh, you know, that's a good question. I don't know exactly. I know like for acidity because like citrus trees was also not native to Mexico. So from the tuna, there's the 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 or the uh, the cactus. The fruit that comes off of it is called the tuna. But there's also another one for like the male. that's called the uh, choconosle, and it's this really incredibly like tart. And this is what they used a lot of times to give you some acidity and to give you some of that balance when you start doing dishes. So I like a soup that was with that, and it was like almost if you had added some sort of you know vinegar component to it. It was really interesting. In, in Pueblo, you know, you got chilies, you got some pork. What are some other ingredients that you, you only find there? Um, it's not the ingredients like you know like only like in Pueblo like we can find it like which I, I tried to look like everywhere over here on. Uh, any uh, wholesales, like when, or even including a Mexican markets, which some items say, I have to tell my mom uh, to ship it, you know, directly to me. You know, they call uh, uh, 
Uh, now you can find it, but like two years ago, like, you know, like papalos. Like papalos is a leaf, which you can eat it with any meal, you know, basically, especially with tacos. You know, like now you go like every taqueria, they have like a big bunch of papalos and you eat it just like that, just like, a, like a herbs. And that's before you would never find it over here. And now I started getting little by little. Even I have like, the way I have there, like, uh, I was say like eight years ago, I told my mom, I was like, I really want some papalos. She's like, okay, how are we going to send it? I was like, you know what? Just f- try to find the seed and send it to me. So even now I grow it in my backyard. I really? have that. You know, like, did you know that it was the papalos? <laughs> but, but it's interesting because like papalos is something you don't see in Mexico City much at all. Only like a few things, and there's a special like torta that, that's very popular in Puebla. Like the semita, like the semita, the semita they need to have the papalo. So if it's not it. papalo, it's not semita. Exactly. So semita is like a, a sandwich with like a special bun that you, that's really you only see in Puebla, um, and it has this papalo. And papalo, to me, I love the taste of it. But once you take one bite of it, you're gonna taste it for the rest of the day. Yes. Not even the next day. Just like the guajes. Guajes also. Right. <laughs> you know, one, one thing in your book, Danny, you you talk about corn. And tortillas and, and masa and, and where tacos came from. Tell us about where that term taco, the word taco came from. You know, it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's interesting. I mean, the, 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 the taco, like in, in the book we talk about like everything is a taco. Um, and, it's, it's, and at the end of the day, like everything we kind of put together, like whatever, uh, you know, whatever, if you get like a fish dish or if you get carnitas or even if you get like some mole, you always have tortillas on the side and you're always kind of making this... Uh, the dish into a taco um so it's something that like you know the spaniard i mean the indigenous people of mexico figured out that if you cook corn with uh with lime and not the citrus lime but like calcium carbonate you actually get like a complete amino acid and so you can live off of the rest of your life just eating corn like you know beans and and tortillas but if you're eating corn and uh, what's the process that makes the masa so that is what's what they call nixtamalized nixtamalization and so what the process is, basically, you have your corn, it's dried, and then you boil it with a little bit of calcium car- uh, carbonate, which is basically charcoal. Um, so I think originally that's how it kind of started with that. And somehow now they figured it out. But once you cook that, you know, then traditionally, you know, way back in the day, it was always ground by hand. So it was basically this kind of like flat sort of uh, lava stone. And there was like a rolling pin, and that's how they would just mash the... Uh, they called metate. El metate, exactly. El metate, yeah. So basically, that's the way how you do the tortillas. You know, like uh, like I said, like I, when I was in Mexico, I used to be ground, ground the corn, you dry it, and, and, and you cook it. And like now they have like machines, but like before, like with the metate, like you ground it all day, and you come out, you make the masa from there. And like every day, like about the tacos, like you said about the tacos... Uh, everything basically you call like taco Mexico because you can you're not eating without tortilla. You have tortilla always on the table. So whatever you have, if you have a soup with a piece of meat inside, you take the meat in the tortilla and you do it like your own taco in the moment. When my mom or my sister like making tortillas right in front of me. How, how come so many? Well, in your book also, there's a lot of great bake, bakery uh, photos. But why do so many Mexicans that I know in New York eat tortas and semitas sandwiches? If if is is that a separate world or? You know, I, mean, I like sandwiches, but you know I'm just trying to give, I mean, give the, you the hard time. I, yeah, of course. I mean, not everything is a taco. Ninety nine percent, it's a taco. But uh, but yeah, there's a torta. You know, what I mean, a torta is a big uh, a, a big also slice of the pie of what people eat. Um, you know, typically a torta in Mexico is basically a sandwich. Almost always has beans on the bottom, and then you can kind of put anything else that you want to. In every town, into like in Leon, they have some there called guacamayas, and of course you have the semitas from Puebla. Um, 
But it's still, I think, in comparison to the amount of corn, like in Mexico, corn and tortillas are such are such a important part of the of the diet that actually it's subsidized by the government, and you're not allowed to charge a certain amount. So when all of a sudden they say like there's inflation, we're like, okay, now the price of a kilo of tortillas went from you know three fifty to three seventy five. And can cause like a, a lot of outrage, but it's controlled that way because it's such an important part. Where bread, of course, does not. It's have. like m- milk used to be regulated in, in the states. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly, and so that's how kind of that's how how which also hurts when people are now trying to use like heirloom corns and trying to make tortillas that are of better quality because you know we start taking you know tortillas for granted, but it's I mean like what makes the taco great is you have three basic ingredients: you have the actual tortilla, you have whatever meat filling, and the salsa. And if one of the three is not is not good, is not proper, then you're not going to have a good taco. So it's kind of like saying, I'm going to make a really great sandwich, and we got this beautiful roasted like meat that I've been doing for 15 hours. We got these amazing pickles that are local, this handmade mustard, you know, all this, and we're going to put it on Wonder Bread. You know, that, that, there, goes, there goes your Sammy. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> He's smiling. And Eric, uh, let's talk about um, distilling or fermenting. So with agave for uh-huh. the mezcal... Just walk us through the process of making it, because I was at a, a symposium yesterday in New York. Uh, there was a Wakaka uh, distiller there as well, this guy Jonathan Barbieri, uh-huh. and he was talking about the challenges of distilling corn or making the mash from corn to make a whiskey. So how, how is it that mezcal is so successful and coming out so so clean and corn corn whiskey makers are struggling in Mexico, I don't know. Tell I me. I think if one. I was to jump to that part, I, I, my only guess because I haven't tried it is that experience, the hand of the maker. We're talking about many, many generations of heritage knowledge, which most with most of these traditional producers. And I think whiskey is a new experiment uh, with all your your growing pains, with some great successes and failures or challenges in, in that evolution. I don't think there, to my knowledge, has been some old domestic Mexican whiskey makers or corn whiskey from generations. Um, but the process is really analogous. Uh, you know, it, you have to, um, you have a source, in this case, uh, agave. Actually, in this case, what's in your glass right now, we poured another bottle. This is Sotal. So we just this finished is, one bottle, now we're on yeah. the second bottle. I <laughs> yeah, love this place. This, this is uh, something called La Higuera Sotal. And Sotal is made from a plant that is a... Um, another type of succulent uh, that's not an agave, but it's analogous. So you harvest it, you have a heart, the piña, uh, and then those piñas, whether it's agave or sotal, there are various types of carbohydrates that have to be broken down to fructose. We use heat, and in both of these cases, we're using you know, wood roasting with many traditional, typical, or uh, more traditional tequilas, you're using a neutral roast, you know, so you'll have that type of mezcal, tequila is a mezcal, uh, that has their signature, which is not using wood, although there are some, very few, that are doing it uh, with a wood roasted tequila. So you have to have heat, you have to break it down, you have to get to the sugars so the yeast could eat it. Um, fermentation happens in so many different various ways, depending on the place and the maker. Wood vats, uh, hides, cow hides, uh, adobe stone vats, underground vats. So that's a huge variation of traditional, and then as well as more modern ways, whether it's plastic or stainless steel um, distillation. It, it, Mexico is amazing. There are a staggering amounts of types of stills that are tr- 
in practice, regardless of the outside world that are just domestically, internally practiced. So we have people doing um, many different varieties of clay pot stills and wooden stills, and some of them are tree trunk stills and copper stills, and uh, it's, it's really cool. So all of that comes to uh, together to give us this huge rainbow of experiences, which is why, you know, for me, when I started with Fidencio, it's a brand and a project that's all from one man and one place. But as an outsider, as uh, somebody who likes beverage and spirits and seeing what I was seeing, I was like, wow, this is so much bigger uh, than, than any one maker can represent. So I started going towards other producers and sharing that, that space. Danny, what's the backstory on the Mezcal de Leyenda? I mean, that, that, what you're doing is amazing. So you, just tell us about there's different regional Mezcals. And yeah, I mean, the, the way it kind of got started, so like my partner's from Mexico City, and they started traveling around Mexico and, you know, learning about it. Is, and this was the late 90s, so Internet was just getting started. The denomination of origin of Mezcal was created in 1994 with NAFTA. So really, even though there's debate on how many hundreds of years ago did they start actually distilling the spirit, um, in terms of a category, in terms of what people consumed, it was, it was, it's really a very new spirit. And so they were kind of traveling around Mexico, and my partner was in Oaxaca, which is where a lot of mezcal gets produced, and another one was up in Durango, and he came back. He's like, you know, there's mezcal up here. And they're like, no, 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 mezcal has to come from Oaxaca. And so little by little, they start traveling around. They met somebody and another friend, and he's like, oh, well, you got to go meet these brothers. Oh, you got to go meet them. You got to go check out what everyone's doing. And little by little, you start to understand, like Puebla, it was an amazing place where it just became part of the denomination of origin of mezcal technically, but they've been making mezcal there. I mean, La Mixteca, that region is where they first started to nixtamalize corn, where a lot of like native chilies and corns, like it's a really important, like I call it like the breadbasket of Mexico. Um, and so when we found in love with mezcal, it was, it was really about talking about, you know, the, 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 the culture and the traditions of mezcal from every different region. So, you know, in Oaxaca, they can say, for us, this is mezcal, and this is the way we do it, you know, and that's where we're talking about, like, the different types of fermentation or distillations, and then for someone else in Puebla, they're like, no, no, this is the good agave, and this is the way you're supposed to do it, and everyone does it in their own sort of way, which, which makes it all unique, and so by tasting these spirits and, you know, the, all those sort of changes between the different type of plant, the process, you know, the terroir, which, of course, takes, uh, you know, is because a plant, one of these plants takes 7 to 15 years on average and can take up to 30 or 40. So all those things that, that come into it. So it's like grapes for wine. It's like grapes for wine, you know, and, and really it's so important that, like, and exactly, like, I mean, if you want to classify, like, even by agave, so, like, really, when you look at mezcal now, it's much more about the varietal because that really gives you a, a sense of, of, of what you're about to drink. But then the place, too. You can have the exact same varietal from two different towns or from two different states, it's very different. It's like a Pinot Noir from Oregon and, you know, what there's in Burgundy. Those are going to be very different flavors, even though it's the exact same grape. You, you, one of your mezcal de Leyenda's regional mezcals mm -hmm. is called is Guarana. The, Guerrero? Guerrero, there which to me has the most unusual flavor. And, it's, it's, and, and as Agaves goes, it was one of my favorites. Um, it's really an interesting one, and it's definitely one that is the nose is very different than the palate. Um, it has a lot of like tropical notes, and you get, but then when you drink it, there can be some brine on it. There's a lot of like black pepper, um, there's some like melon notes. It's really an interesting sort of uh, agave that is one of my favorites, but it's definitely one to, uh, you know, round no, two. No, it's great. And I'm, I'm a huge fan. And I'm really proud of you, Danny, the book Made in Mexico, because from you being a restaurant tour in New York City, bringing in some craft beers as well as mezcal. You really, uh, to me, you're representing, you know, the life many of us want to have. And Sinobio, so Puebla, we're talking about agave, 
other products growing in Pueblo. You want to add anything else? No, nah, it's not really. Like, basically, he already talked everything about <laughs> La Mixteca. That's the only, the only one basically done in Puebla because that's the one, like, my grandpa, like, my father used to be drinking. And I, so what's, sta- what's, I started drinking here. What's so. La Mixteca? What's that? There was a one. There was a one. Was a one mezcal on the town. They were. Uh, we used to be get like, uh, um, like in a big pot like that, which basically I never really tasted how they taste. And I find over here because one day they sent it to my brother in and I tasted it was really good. But I think that's just more like a homemade. They like they're doing like everything homemade in Puebla or part of Puebla. Yeah. So so La Mixteca is an is a region in in. From there's like Mixteca Alta and Mixteca Baja, the high and the low, but it's a region basically from Puebla and a little bit to Oaxaca. So this is where there was a lot of like, and so there are the Mixtec um, indigenous people that used to live there, you know, thousands of years ago, and so that's why they call that region like La, La Zona Mixteca. Before there was state borders, it was that territory for those people. One of the interesting things before Puebla became a, incorporated into the denomination of origin, so there was this. Um, they didn't have the economic opportunity to export under the label mezcal because they weren't yet in it. So their mezcals were still being made, as they always were, but not as much demand on the land. And there were times I remember driving from Oaxaca inside the Mixteca region, and you would see no agave in the, on the mountains as you're driving along the highway. You cross the border, border into Puebla, and there's peppered with agave all over the place. So it's... Um, it's a really, really rich, beautiful area there. Great. And last thing, um, Sinobio, just tell us, so now you guys came in and took over the Morgan's Brooklyn <coughs> Barbecue in uh, Prospect Heights, Park Slope, Brooklyn. What, what are some of the things you're changing on the menu? Uh, we have some new items on the menu, basically, and we're going to add more. Like, because like, the idea is that we, we try to stay with our brand a little bit more. Uh, like We added like, uh, uh, stripped corn, uh, Mexican street corn. We have... Uh, in the new one, we just said on the menu is that, uh, bacon ribs, smoked bacon ribs. So that's, we do everything over there. We cure in the house. We do everything. Most like uh, 99% of uh, our, our, our menu, everything is homemade. Everything we make, everything we make over there, including like desserts, uh, uh, all the like all the pastries, all the bread and, and, and everything, sauces, everything, everything, like barbecue sauces. We try to... Uh, also, like, doing selling in a, in a bottle. So, actually, we selling already in the restaurant. But, like, all that we do, like, we do in the house. And the new items of the menu, which is which is more items, will be added, like, very soon. Like, on the, brun- like, uh, on the brunch menu, uh, dinner menu. Uh, it's a bunch of other stuff. The idea, like, we, like we're doing right now. And what, what chilies are you, are you using in, right in, there? in the menu there? I use jalapenos, poblanos, chile de árbol, labanero, uh, pasilla, chile ancho, uh, chipocles. Like a lot of chiles already in Morgan's, which there was not there before. You can hear it in his voice, but when Sonobio <laughs> talks about chilies, he smiles. Like, Thanks so much for coming out. You guys have been great. Morgan's Thank Brooklyn Barbecue. Thank you Barbecue. very much for inviting. This year you're part, you were part of Brook, Brisket King NYC, Rib King NYC, Pig Island NYC. And Danny, La Loncheria, just not too far from here in Bushwick. Yeah, here right here, like you know, three or four blocks away, Forty One Wilson Avenue. So it's kind of like a, a take on a, like a Mexican luncheonette. So we got a lot of tortas, funny enough, and that's like a, the main focus of the. But of course, we have tacos and we have. So a what, of what, dishes. What's, what's your favorite tortas? So, so you know, with, right I'm, I'm hungry. That's you're why. hungry. Right now, so we'll do this. We'll <laughs> I get mezcal. I'm hungry. Yeah, uh, well, you know, right now we just did one, and we what we did so with the restaurants a little more playful, and so we did basically like porchetta. Um, and we marinated with like a uh, green mole pumpkin sauce uh, or pumpkin seed sauce. Um, and then we put um, 
And after it gets roasted and everything for about, you know, 10 hours, um, we slice it up, we crisp it up again in the oven to heat it up. And so there's this, the one I was talking about, this torta called the guacamaya, which is basically a, a sandwich, as you see in León, that it's chicharrón, so crispy pork cracklings, uh, salsa roja, pico de gallo, and avocado. So instead of just doing a simple chicharrón, we did the porchetta, and then we did the pico de gallo, we did the avocado. And so we kind of, it's a riff on that. And it came out really, really nice. So you still have to excited. interpret things for the New York City audience. Yeah, and no, and, and with the way Mexican food is kind of keeps evolving. Like when we first opened Echo and Dumbo, it was all about trying to be like really authentic, and I wanted to do food that like. But now, even in Mexico, you're starting to see people being more playful. So the idea, you know, it's something that I've always had like a challenge of what is Mexican food, you know, and I, I can't, I can tell you what is not, but I don't know really what is. And so like this torta has the beans. It's like chili. We we ask you pickle some uh, mushrooms and then we we kind of batter and fry them and uh and it adds this nice kind of crisp but so we're being very playful yet at the end of the day when you're eating the torta you should say ah this this is a torta it's not a sandwich you so know basically I mean? you're saying that i mean I'm, I'm not an expert on mexican food at all but between the different regions of mexico and then the different regions of mexican food in america i mean we're talking about a lifetime I think we should just start tasting, right? That's, that's what we need <laughs> Let's to do. Let's go eat, that's, man. That's how you learn about mezcal, about beer, and about food, huh? And last thing, so pumpkin seeds. Is that an indigenous ingredient to Mexico? That is. That is. I always so forget good, about that. Yeah, yeah. Pumpkins there and, and squash. Yeah, in one more item, like we have a, uh, it's coming out on the menu, like at, it was like at the second week or uh, the third week of September. It was like only for tacos. We have a menu they call Tacos Tacos. So that's they have like uh, a lot of Mexican uh, Mexican dishes like they have the burrito they have the quesadilla they have the semita we we that's we kind of do like only for takeout we kind of try to do it like so I think that kind of we kind of it's gonna work. Yes. Awesome. Well, this is exciting, Danny. Again, uh, made in Mexico by Danny Mena, and uh, it's Mena. It's Mena. Mena. The, the, the people have a tendency of, of just because they see it in Spanish, the N, they think it's automatically an Enya, but it literally has to have that tilde on top. If not, it's just like a regular N. Yeah. And I'm yeah. glad your book's out. And the the last thing about the, the craft lager that you're bringing in, what's it called again? So it's called Habali. Um, so we'll be seeing that in the market here by uh, middle of October. So it's a nice box. And, and in the box. last year, I'll tell you, a number of people that are, that are doing import, um, everyone was asking last year for a craft Mexican lager. So, so you must be on to something. Hopefully. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> All right, guys. And uh, one more time again. So let's go around the room. Everyone say their name one more time. We're going to say goodnight. So, uh, yeah, thank you, guys. This is uh, Danny Mena. Mena. Eric <laughs> yeah. Torrent. Thank you. Thank you. Senovio Canaliso. From Morgan's Brooklyn From Morgan's Brooklyn Barbecue. All right, guys. Thanks so much for joining mm-hmm. me here on the Heritage Radio Network. Uh, big shout out to engineer Matt Patterson, assistant producer Aaliyah Paps, and I'm Jimmy Carboni. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. 
Thanks for listening.